Hello, Julian. Hi, Mike. Got a question for you. Yeah, yeah. Brachycephalics, good thing or bad thing? Well, it's a bad thing, isn't it? Well, I don't know. Well, let's have the kennel club on. Let's see what they're going to do about it, shall we? Let's get Bill King and Bill Lambert from the Kennel Club of Great Britain on and find out what's happening. OK, let's go for it. Hi, I'm Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Hope. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. Let's get Bill in and let's, let's hear let's, here he is. Here's Bill. Good evening, Bill. Hi, Bill. Good evening. So are we are we being joined by your colleague? We are indeed. Bill King is joining us. Hello, Bill. Hello, how are you? Excellent, thank you. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Um, I'm fine, thank you very much. Good. Actually, I wanted to ask you very quickly there. I mean, how how do you refer to yourselves or refer to each other? Because we've got Bill and Bill here. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm just I'm just concerned that I, I, I say, so Bill, tell me. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. What 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 you don't want to do is call either of us William because <laughs> William is the name given to Bills when they're in trouble, usually okay. by authority figures from mothers, fathers, companies, the whole nine yards. So, um, um, I don't know, Bill L, Bill K, whatever you want. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Right. When, whenever, whenever I'm in trouble, my wife calls me Julian. And uh, whenever I'm not in trouble, it's, uh, you know, darling, hey, you, dum-dum, whatever. You know, it's only Julian when I'm in trouble. Yeah. And, and the weekends, it's Julie. Uh, yeah, Friday nights and weekends, it's Julie. And uh, get the wig on. <laughs> there we go. Well, it's interesting. We, we actually, we, we, we sit in a number of meetings together. We don't work together every day by any stretch of the imagination. We speak in meetings and I, I don't know about you, Bill, but someone will say, hi, Bill. I'm thinking, does he mean me or does he mean the other Bill? So it does cause a little bit of confusion. But we've Bill's been involved with the Kill Cub for even longer than I have. Um, and we tend to sit in slightly different areas, so it doesn't really pose a problem. Right. Okay. right. So can you tell us a bit about the history of the, of the British Kennel Club? OK, well, I'll go first and then Bill can add anything additional. Um, yeah, it effectively, it started in 1873, where a group of gentlemen really sat down to look at the regulations surrounding dog shows. Prior to that, there had been dog shows in existence, but they'd been a bit of a free-for-all. Um, you know, I might turn up with a dog called Billy and someone else might turn up with a dog called Billy. There was no record of who they were or what they'd won. Um, and it was a bit of a wild west. And um, a, a guy called Seawood uh, Shirley sat down with a group of other gentlemen and they, they set out a club, a kennel club, and it was really originally to set out the rules of, of dog shows. Ultimately, within a few years, they started to set a registry, a stud book of dogs, and it really grew from there. This is an interesting character, wasn't he? The um, Sir Wallace Evelyn Shirley was his name, wasn't it? Uh, who I think was very much into fox terriers and a breed that you like, Bill L. Yes, he was. He was a bull terrier. He was a bull terrier breed. He also bred bulldogs. Um, he was. I think it's fair to say, without wishing to appear rude, dog breeding in those days. Dog breeders were often dog dealers. They bred dogs to a market that they could sell. They may have a preference, 
Um, but they would sell dogs to a market. And of course, it was in the early days of a lot of the, these breeds and there was lots of crossovers. And again, it was one of the reasons the Kennel Club was formed because, you know, what, what constituted a, a bull terrier, it was a set of words effectively, a breed standard. And they set out, the, the breed standards were set out often by the clubs. But in the early days, before stud books and before rules and regulations, who was to say that this dog was a bulldog and that dog was a bull terrier? So that was why the Kennel Club started, really. Mm. Interesting. And presumably women are allowed now. <laughs> yes, uh, and very welcome. Um, one of the most interesting things for me, if you want to talk breeding and you want to talk expertise, invariably you're talking to a lady, not a fella. Um, uh, an old uh, friend of mine used to say that um, it was the women that bred the dogs and the men went to the shows with them and they had to find something to do, so they ran the shows. Um, and uh, it's a bit simplistic, but broadly speaking, it seemed to work. Um, a lovely lady called Florence Nagel, who was a formidable lady, um, uh, she uh, tackled the jockey club as well as the kennel club to get um, uh, female membership, and she succeeded on both counts. Um, and there we are. We're just a, a club with real people of either gender in it. Wow. Mm. Right. And we have club facilities. We have a restaurant. We have club rooms there. Wow. And like some other clubs, there's, there's not accommodation there. But right. it still has. it is still a club um, mm. at it, as it's its basis. But it's also a non-profit business and effectively a charity Right. Which we've run off that. So it oh. is, it's it, it, it's a lot of things in one, quite frankly. Hmm. Interesting. So it's grown quite a bit from its earlier status of, of really being the, the repository of, of stud books and, uh, and and the sort of marking point for uh, for, for dog shows. What, what uh, else did you do? What, what, did, what did you do now? What, uh, what have you added in the last 140, 150 years? Well, basically, um, all canine sports um, uh, uh, we've developed. Um, there's the traditional dog showing. Um, there's obedience um, training, working um, dog trials, gun dog trials. Um, and uh, at the latter part of the last century, agility. Back in the um, very late 1980s, early 90s, um, agility appeared at Crufts for the first time, and um, that took off um, exponentially. It's a very, very big sport um, across the country. And now I'm very pleased to say that it's um, you can actually have agility champions as well. So it's that good. There are all sorts of opportunities. If you have a dog, um, the odds are the Kennel Club has got some interest for you. And it doesn't have to be a pedigree. No. All right. In, interestingly, we're also associated with pedigree dogs, but we actually have been registering. Uh, we found registration for crossbreeds at uh, the beginning of the previous century. So, and the kennel club's always, it's a, it's a bit of a, a misunderstanding about the kennel club. We've always been there for all dogs. But of yeah. course, there is a, a huge, um, we, we register a huge number of, uh, of pedigree dogs, and, and it's the pedigree dog breeders who largely choose to register with us, but we certainly don't close the doors to any dogs. Um, mm. And we are open to all. 
and we we currently register around about between 30 and 40 percent of the pedigree dogs in the UK the non-pedigree population is, is a bit smaller than that right so do you do you classify crossbreeds like um cockapoos are they are they still crossbreeds or, or or mongrels or or are they now classed as pedigrees? No, they absolutely are. They are um, they are crossbreeds. They're still crossbreeds. Right. They can. There is a place for them to register with the kennel club on our activity our activity register. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. what, what would what would induce uh, a, a breeder to to register with the kennel club? What if you like? What's in it for them? Well, first of all, um, the Kennel Club is the gold standard as far as registrations are concerned. Um, it was the first club in the world to register pedigree dogs. Um, we take that database that we've got very seriously indeed. So um, uh, if someone, for example, um, uh, tells porkies about their registration, you can be sure that they'll be dealt with. Um, it's we have a registration system that's uh, primarily based on trust, um, but it's the it's the good quality information that you've got there, and of course you can then trace back um, if you're do if you're doing a, um, a breeding search, you're thinking about different stud dogs, um, you can examine their um, um, parentage um, going all the way back um, through the kennel club. Um, so that's one of the very clear things that a, a breeder uh, can have. Mm-hmm. Um, but for um, uh, a general dog owner, um, one, the uh, that sense of being part of a club. Two, um, access to all sorts of health uh, and welfare information um, that they might not, um, uh, in, in one place, as it were, that's um, easy to digest. Um, a Kennel Gazette, um, if they become an associate member, in addition to uh, health and welfare and legal information concerning dogs, there's also the opportunity to uh, buy canine memorabilia and um, insurance and so on and so forth at discounted prices. So it's basically being part of a family, a canine family, if you like. Mm. Right. And actually, the, the, the Kennel Club insurance is... Uh, uh, offers a very high level of insurance, doesn't it, to, to dogs? It does a lot of insurance. There's a lot of insurance. It's a very competitive market these days. Mm. Um, and it's largely, it's true to say, you, you get what you pay for. Uh, but, of course, canine insurance has really improved the research into, into canine health. Um, what, Of course, what we what Kennel Club registrations brought with it is, of course, this great raft of data. Because mm. we registered dogs, we were able to collect so much data on, on canine disease, um, and of course, we, we've we've taken some of that registration money to actually do some of the research as well. And that's what what, what Bill's very involved. He's involved with the, with the charitable trust, which is effectively the vehicle where we actually take some of our funds, and that actually a lot of that money goes into re- researching um, in, into uh, canine health and welfare. So it's it's really. I like to think in a way we're a bit of a Robin Hood because we take money from the good people and we put it into research into some of the bad diseases. Mm. And that's great. And when you say, when you say research, who's, who's doing the research? Are you uh, giving MSC sponsorship or uh, uh, clinical research fellowship sponsorship? Or do you have researchers doing 
uh, paper research, by and large, literature research. If I talk about the Kennel Club Charitable Trust, we're a a funding body. So um, uh, a university, a veterinarian, um, they'll pitch in with um, a project, an idea uh, that they have, and we will examine um, that particular project. Um, uh, If we don't have the necessary expertise close at hand, we will put that um, project out in confidence to uh, a couple of um, um, authorities who will give a view um, on it. And let's say all the boxes are ticked, then um, uh, you get a you get a grant, and that grant might be for one year or up to a maximum of something like five years to do major research. Um, usually, it's centered around universities. Um, but we have um, uh, we, we 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 have done private practice uh, support as well. Um, a more modest figure is uh, usually asked for when it's private practice. Um, but um, yeah, Roslyn, Cambridge, all the um, uh, the major um, veterinary schools um, uh, we're involved with. Wow. Mm-hmm. So is there any are there any particular papers or pieces of research that you you're able to share with us? Um, well. Um, uh, I can headline um, one, brachycephalic um, uh, dogs and um, uh, the the breathing problems, which are very, very distressing. So um, we are, as a charitable trust, putting up a substantial, and I mean um, many hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of um, uh, money to uh, a team that are investigating 13 different breeds with the objective of of trying to bottom the causes of this and from there, of course, improve the health and well-being of that range of breeds. Mm -hmm. Mm. That's interesting because we've we've seen progressively over the years um, that the the, the brachycephalics, the the noses have been shortening Mm. significantly and, and, of course, that's generally done because the bone structure, the underlying bone structure is, is shortening, but the soft yeah. tissue isn't. So yeah. they've got the same amount of soft tissue there, which is compressing and causing the problems with the breathing. I, I'm sorry to butt in on, on Julian here because he's the real vet. I'm not. Yeah. But um, so I think it's, it's very brave of you to mention brachycephalic straight off the bat like that, Bill. I think. Um, yeah, well, it is. But, but in actual fact, it's been a, a really valuable piece of research. The research has been done so far. We've actually produced a test. So the three most popular breed, brachycephalic breeds, we have the bulldog, the French bulldog and the pug. Mm-hmm. Um, we now have a test that those dogs can undergo before, um, before they, they are bred from. And, and effectively, those dogs will get a score about its breathing capacity. And of course, what we're trying to do is encourage people to breed from the from the better dogs and yep. not breed from the, from the ones that have mm. problems. But mm. the interesting thing to me about that research is it is a far more complex condition than we we suspected originally. Those three breeds have areas in, in different parts of their airways. Their, their problems are a little bit different with each of those breeds. And in actual fact, the, the looking at the dog visually doesn't always give a true picture of how well it's going to breathe. The ones with the very shortest noses aren't necessarily the ones that struggle to breathe. Um, And and that's been one of the really interesting parts of the research. 
when you think about it, you're absolutely right. It's, it's the amount of soft tissue the dogs have. It's often about the amount of weight they're carrying around the neck as well. Um, and they're, consequently, it's, it's, it has been, <laughs> and it has been uh, a really interesting journey. And as Bill says, we're now extending into the other breeds. Right. We concentrate on those three popular ones because they, they represent a large percentage of registrations. And you're probably aware that the popularity of those breeds has grown enormously over the last few years as well. Which I'm, actually, I'm very aware of it. Uh, I'm thinking of buying a Ferrari with a number of brachycephalic uh, surgeries <laughs> I'm doing. But, uh, I know J- Jane Ladlow has been uh, very much instrumental in getting these uh, uh, the, these, these tests, the, the brachycephalic scores going. Um, and I was chatting to her a while back about the, the surgeries that we tend to do. So m- most brachycephalics that, that I see at the practice most of them will require surgery to live a normal life. And uh, we tend to do uh, three things. We tend to shorten uh, the soft palate. We call it a staphylectomy because the soft palate often dangles inside the uh, the, the windpipe. Uh, we, we, we widen the the nares, the uh, uh, nasal openings, uh, and we often perform then a tonsillectomy. And they're the three easiest things to do to try and create uh, a wider airway and more more space but often particularly with french bulldogs that doesn't improve things because they have these huge amounts of turbinate tissue at the back of the, the nose and really ct scans uh, are, are crucial for, for these breeds in getting to know what you need to do before you do it because in those breeds you can you can widen the airways as, as much as you like but Unless you actually get in there with uh, with a laser and burn off these these turbinate tissues, they're still not really going to be comfortable. Mm. Uh, the, yeah. the the problem I'd say, sorry, I, I'm, I'm waffling on, but this is rambling. The, the the big problem I find is trying to convince the owners that there's a problem. And, and Mike, uh, as you know, um, is is the uh, the inventor of pulse oximetry in dogs and cats, and, and Mike's done a lot of work on looking at the standing and walking uh, oxygen saturation of brachycephalics. And a lot of them have uh, resting saturated oxygen pressures of, of about 68 70%. Uh, now, I had that when I was on Mont Blanc. I had to be helicoptered off. Yeah. And these, these dogs are living like that. But the owners don't, don't recognise it. And so I think part of the job that, that you're doing in the kennel club is, is bringing that to the fore, because you can. You have the marketing uh, power to do that, haven't you? Yes, uh, we do. So in, Sorry, Bill, far away. <laughs> so, uh, owner awareness is, is a huge issue. It, it absolutely is. And and the thing is, you see, we have I have we have the benefit of seeing. I have seen long before the research that we do. I've I've seen some of the improvements that actually breeders have made. And and just anecdotally, I mean, I used to go to dog shows, and, and years ago when I first started going to shows in in the late seventies, you, you could hear the bulldog ring. Uh, coming into the show, the bulldogs would be snorting and roaring, and and actually that's completely different now. And I, I I've taken a number of people around crafts and, and vets to say to show them the bulldogs, and they've said actually so the bulldogs you have here are completely unlike the ones that we see in surgery. They're all sitting there, none of them are panting, and they're all, all mm. quite happy. So there are a lot, there are different subpopulations in the breed. And of course, what has happened over recent years as these breeds have become more popular. Rather than being bred by a few selective breeders who really know what they're doing, they understand the breed, they've now become almost a commodity, unfortunately, and particularly in the French Bulldog, 
Lots of people have jumped on the bandwagon. They're breeding with no real care about health or welfare. And they're, they're, there's a ready market out there, unfortunately, with, and particularly through the pandemic, which, in, you know, puppies are, mm-hmm. the price of dogs has, has gone up. So it's almost been the perfect storm, actually, for, for um, bad breeders to flourish in, quite frankly. Uh, and, of course, there is a, there, you're absolutely right. There's a huge education issue and it's trying to get people to go to the right breeders, the good breeders, rather than buying the first puppy that comes along. Um, and it's it's a, it's a, one of our biggest challenges, quite frankly. How, yeah. how are you, how are you facing that? Uh, well, first of all, um, by investing in um, uh, good scientific research so that we can bottom um, the condition and come up with some pr- um, additional practical solutions um, that may involve surgery or may not. Um, who knows? Um, uh, this is a, a four-year project. But the other thing, and um, I make no apologies if this sounds a bit romantic, but we have to, perhaps with the help of the veterinary profession, um, get people to look at uh, bracky dogs in a different light. And I'll go back, um, uh, I do have a butterfly mind, and I thought of all creatures great and small. Uh And I loved all creatures great and small. And invariably, there was an awful lot of beer and an awful lot of driving. Now, in Mm -hmm. 2021, if you drive a car um, stuffed up with alcohol, you incur not only the wrath of the uh, police, but the community as a whole. I'd like to see a situation where people do not think it's charming to hear a dog wheeze, that they think, oh dear, what's the problem? Um, so we've got a big challenge, um, but we're up for it. Okay. So, yeah, that, that's amazing. Because I think the, the yeah. obvious answer that the veteran professionals come up with is, well, ban brachycephalics. What, why isn't the kennel club doing that? Why aren't they saying, well, you can't have brachycephalics? But, but it's precisely what you said, actually, that there are brachycephalics out there that don't have the obstructive airway disease uh-huh. and it's your your role to perhaps police that the veteran profession's role to to help with that uh, advising uh-huh. and the general public's role to be aware as you say that it's not okay to have a dog that goes <laughs> <laughs> banning banning breeds is something that, that, that's often considered of course and I mean, the, the, we, we know from experience it's banning breed simply does not work. We've seen it with the, with the Pitbull Terrier. The Pitbull, yeah. if, the, if it worked, then the Pitbull Terrier, which was banned effectively from being bred in, in 1991, would be extinct now. And as I'm sure it has affected in practice, you see Pitbulls, you see dogs of a Pitbull type, uh, and there's lots of them, and a lot of them are very sweet-natured dogs. Banning breeds doesn't work. You'd simply drive them underground. As I said earlier, we, we register between 20, between 30 and 40% of, of pedigree dogs in the UK. Actually, that means there's another 60 or 70% out there that we don't touch. Wow. So, um, you know, and it is so actually trying to actually control a breed population is, is really not going to be possible. You would just drive them under, underground. Even now, there's lots of different uh, derivations of, of bulldog. There's American bulldogs, there's the American bullies, there's XL mm. bullies, lots of breeds that we don't register, but they're growing in popularity. So if you push, if you clamp down on a, on a breed as such, 
you're just going to push it in a different direction. So, you know, we'd much rather work with these, we work with the good breeders and actually educate them, educate the public that you there is a way to go and buy a healthy example of those breeds. So, so promoting I, the positive in that respect. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and building on Bill's point, one of the things I can't get my head around is why would somebody buy a puppy online? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I really don't get past first base. Um, and you can say, oh, well, Bill, you know, you've been around dogs for years, did da did da did da um, it, it, it just, it, 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 I, I know it really is um, beggar's yeah. belief. It because, does beggar's belief. You know, it's almost, um, uh, again, excuse my butterfly brain, but, you know, um, can we get a puppy flat pack so it can come through the letterbox mm. and all that kind of stuff? It, it's it's quite the wrong thing to be doing. You've got to get in to see the bitch. You've got to get a feel for the people who are breeding those dogs as well. Um, because mm. um, a number of people who perhaps might want a specific breed might not be capable of looking after that breed or control. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Or, 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 have, or have the facilities for doing that. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. One breed that comes to mind uh, is Border Collies. One of my favourite breeds. I love them. Yeah. Uh, would I get a Border Collie? No, because I haven't got enough time during the day to exercise it. Pure and simple. And people don't realise that. They, they look at a breed, they love it, and they read about it and they think, okay, this this breed is good for me, but they don't think this individual may not be. And a yeah. client once said to me, what, what dog do you reckon I should get for a family? And I said, you know, I reckon you should get um, Charlie. They said, what? I said, Charlie, this is a dog you used to have. He was fantastic. You should get him. They said, you know what breed? I said, gosh, he was a Labrador, but, you know, I wouldn't necessarily get any old Labrador, but you know, if you get Charlie, he was fantastic. And that's the thing you can't know until you've, spent a bit of time with the breed. You can go to dog shows and you can chat to, to, to the responsible breeders that, that, that you meet there. And I think, I think you can always tell who the responsible breeders are at dog shows because they're the ones who are willing to chat to you mm. and who aren't going to put down that one over there. Um, and you, you spend a bit of time, as you say, with the dam, with the mum, oh. and get to know the pups and ask questions. And a responsible breeder will always say to you, let me chat to you more. Let me, let me see whether I want you to buy this puppy. And we'll then continue the journey. So they would just say, okay, there's £5,000 for this mongrel because it's a pandemic pup. But here, here's your puppy. Let, let's chat in a couple of days' time, see how you're getting on. And let's meet up in a week's time or a month's time and we'll see how all the others are getting on and we'll exchange things. Because it is a journey through life. These are companions we're getting, not, as you say, not, not flat-packed chattels. Julie, you can do that uh, because your experience with animals, I can do that, Bill can do that, Mike can do that. But, of course, for the puppy-buying public, for the person who is not knowledgeable, they don't get those warning signs. They don't understand... No. That those those signals and, and and if they come across a breeder who's not as responsible, then they will get led up the garden path. So this is why it's, it's so important to try and add this education piece because actually we might think it's simple, 
But buying a puppy is actually quite complex. There's so many signal signs out there. Mm. And, of mm. course, that's put into one side the fact that once someone wants to, wants to buy a puppy, they have stars in their eyes. It becomes an emotional journey, um, and, and common sense, quite frankly, goes out of the window. And once the, the, if the, if the puppy buyer gets over the threshold of that breeder, even if it's a bad breeder, then by the time they see the puppies, whatever those puppies will look like, they will come away with one, even if they know it's fundamentally the wrong thing to do because it's a rescue mission at that. So oh, I took it away, and actually I took two away because uh, I felt sorry for them. Absolutely. And, and they bring them to us for, for, a, for a first check, let me check. And I'll look at it and I'll say, well, you know, okay, there's only three legs. It's got one knee missing and it's got a heart murmur. I know, but I can't send it back because because what would it go back to? Yeah, it is. It tugs the heartstrings. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. But there are resources. And there are great resources on your website. And there are great resources on, on the RSPCA and PESA websites and the BSAVA and the BVA websites. Do you know how many people came to see me in advance of getting a new puppy last year? So, how many people do you think came to the practice last year because well, they wanted advice on getting a puppy? Well, I know that you're going to say it's very few because one of the conversations I've had with the veterinary profession, we, we've tried to work with them to promote our mm. short breeder scheme because I've always felt that vets must be a good source of, 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 uh, of advice for puppies. And of course, we run an assured breeder scheme, which is all about responsible breeding. It encapsulates all those things that responsible breeders should be doing. And it gives one clear message. But, you know, buy from this responsible, buy from the assured breeder. It's a much simpler message for the public to understand. But you're absolutely right. The veterinary profession, university came back and said, by the time we see the dogs, it's too late. They've already made the purchase. Mm. I still think personally there, there must be a much better tie up there because there, there are sadly there's going to be a number of people who come to you for the with a final visit with their dog the dog has to be put to sleep and that person is going to want to buy a dog at some point now maybe that's not the time to have the conversation but actually they are if we could get to them early mm. there is another element to that and that is and it, it does time with good breeding good responsible breeding it's about all the health tests that breeders can do, the screening tests they can do before breeding. And I think that we sh I'd, I'd like to work much more closely with the veterinary profession to actually promote those tests because the, a lot of the vets I speak to really don't know much about those pre-breeding tests. They may know about the hip and, and eye schemes, but they're not aware of a lot of the other tests that, that breeders actually routinely do now. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, yeah, because it's not just those hip elbow and eye there are various genetic tests they can do the brachycephalic scoring scheme is coming up but I'll, I'll tell you a little incident if i could um that happened yesterday in practice uh a, a client not a client of ours but a client of another practice uh used to used to come to us um but moved out of the area and he, he came along with uh, with a couple of dogs uh they wanted uh, hip scoring because he wanted to breed them and um, I said do you want elbow scores done no they don't want elbow scores have you had eye scores done no 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 just just hip scores I want done and examining them I realized that why the reason he didn't want elbow and eye scores done was because both dogs had at the age of two and a half years old such advanced elbow dysplasia 
but I could not fully flex or extend their elbows. And they both had bilateral entropion. And I said, look, I, I will not do hip scores. Mm. I'm not going to take any x-rays and do hip scores. Well, why not? There shouldn't be the question, why not? I'm not going to do them because I, I'm going to put on the notes here, I do not recommend breeding from this this bitch, either of these bitches. You know, I, I would strongly recommend that you get them neutered at the earliest possibility and they're taken out of the gene pool. And um, they then become this tirade of, of abuse from the owner, as you can imagine. Um, the, the, or the, the, these breeds, they always... They always have bad elbows because because uh, their size, and actually, you know, they're Rottweilers. They're Rottweilers, and some Rottweilers have straight faces, have a curly faces. One with curly faces have normally curled in eyelids, and it doesn't do them any harm. And it was this inherent uh, arrogance and uh, stupidity and and ill-educatedness, and there's no way I was going to educate that client. Unfortunately, no way any of us can, but. But I did not, I refused to send the uh, uh, x-rays off for, 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 for the hips because Son's law says they would have been okay and he would have been able to breed from them and, and thus promulgate this, this, this awful specimen. Um, and unfortunately, I think that happens quite a lot, that, that breeders, that the bad breeders, the poor breeders, will cherry pick. And they'll think, I'm going to get elbows done on this, not hips, because I know there's a history of bad hips in this line, but the elbows have been okay. And I'm going to I'm going to schmooch the client. They're going to come along, they're going to say, I want to buy a puppy. I'll tell you what, elbows, really bad problem in this breed. But look, I've been a very, very good owner and breeder here, and I've had the elbows scored, and they are fantastic. Oh, that's brilliant. Why can't he use his back legs? Oh, it's the rock one, I think. Yeah. They never, they never do that. Mm. The, the other thing, element um, in there, um, I, I think, um, at the risk of sounding world-weary, is money. Sounds oh, yeah. as though um, that guy was wanting you to rubber stamp what uh, his plan was. I'm going to make some dosh out of um, these. And let's face it, if the dog um, gets beyond being able to move comfortably, put it down. But it won't be my problem because I'll have sold it on. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, I, I, no time for uh, people like that. Real breeders, real passionate people, um, like my good friend Bill, passionate about his breed, um, he would not dream of going down that. His first thing, if there was an elbow problem, would be to try to find a way to um, uh, er eradicate that, not cover it up. Uh -huh. um, and, um, yeah, the, the, we, I think we've got an opportunity for a joint um, um, uh, kind of campaign of awareness, if you like. And just a quick throwaway line, I was thinking um, two things. Usually, um, vet practices have puppy um, um, uh, little puppy clubs where yeah, puppy parties, puppy clubs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and I wonder whether you could kind of um, add on talk to a vet thinking about buy, uh, buying a dog. Talk to a vet in in the puppy party context, as it were. Um, 
and it might be in brackets free close brackets because it's a you know that yeah. that think, might be a, a a thing that um uh, mitigates against uh, people stepping through the door as well and that's the issue you've got the, the bad breeders that you described julia yes of course they exist you know there there are bad in, in all professions you know and and we have our fair share of them but yeah. i could also say there are bad vets out there as well absolutely every, every, every vet who would have sent those off yeah, every profession has their good and bad. And, of course, our job is to try and point people towards those good, caring people who who really do care about what they do and really yeah. try to make a positive difference. Yeah. And I think it's one of the ways that dog breeding has changed. Um, over the years, we've seen that they used to, when I, even when I first started breeding in the late 70s, there were... A lot of the there were lots of large kennels around in those days, and people had 20, 30, 40 dogs. Now, those large kennels have largely disappeared. Um, mm-hmm. those big breeders, in, in many ways, they were criticized because by today's standards, they would possibly be described as puppy farms because they were large, large places where perhaps the welfare conditions weren't so good. But those breeders had enormous knowledge about their breeding mm-hmm. lines and about their breeds. Nowadays, we have that breeding's done on a much more a much smaller scale. That the average breeder will, you know, even the serious breeder will probably have no more than ten dogs, and and they they're working with much smaller numbers, and they perhaps make a different set of decisions than the breeder who had forty or fifty dogs and would say, well, I've had a problem with that breed dog, so I won't breed from that one again. I'll I'll give it away. Now breeders are making perhaps slightly different decisions, in some ways more informed decisions, because the data we have is actually greater these days. Yeah, but it's the change. If they access that data, and that's what it comes down to, isn't it? Now, the people who used to have 40 or 50 bitches, yeah, you're absolutely right. Maybe sometimes the husbandry wasn't so good, but there's nothing inherently wrong with a large farm that's well run, when you compare it to someone's back garden where they have no facilities, and what it all comes down to is knowledge and care, isn't it? Mm. So, and, and that that's what we sort of lost touch of, I think, or the public have necessarily lost touch of. There's, there's a and, couple. Of, there's a couple of things there that you've said though, um, Julian. Number one, if that situation that you faced yesterday was repeated with a new graduate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I perceive that they may not have had the personal fortitude to stand up to that particular character. Yes. If you're talking about a guy walks in with two Dobermans, you've immediately got a. I mean, maybe I'm uh, typecasting here, but I can picture the style of character that walked in with two Dobermans to get the hip scores done. But um, I, I guess I'm, I'm a short person anyway, so. I've got through life not being easily intimidated by bigger people because that would be everyone. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But the but the other point, picking up on what you were saying there, Bill, um, the 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 puppy party thing and the education thing with the vets and through the vets is is absolutely fantastic. Um, but a lot of the puppy buying public, it strikes me, have got quite a large presence on social media now. I'm sure that if the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons did a Facebook page, they probably wouldn't do it very well because there's an austere, um, historical, ancient um, organisation that is the establishment. Um, I, I don't think, think many do. people. 
I don't think many people go on Facebook to look at uk.gov because there's another old establishment. But there are other ways to build a presence through different personas on Facebook. Um, is it is it worth reaching out on, on social media to to do that and to try and guide as well as through the, the, the positive reinforcement that you you've obviously very strongly given us tonight, which is a really positive thing and you know quite heartwarming to think that that's where your drive is as the kennel club. Um, mm. but to really get a grip on social media and a social media presence, but probably not as the kennel club. It's an interesting point. We, we do do quite a lot on social media. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say that we're not a technology-led company uh, or right. organisation, and, and there are other people who perhaps do it um, you know, more, more quickly and more up-to-date than we do, but we do have a, a large presence on social media, mm-hmm. and certainly I think that's the way a lot of our marketing will be driven in the future yeah. uh, is, is in those new ones. And actually, you have to because um we we've you've got to the, that's where the young always get their information from yeah. and uh, even even little things like um some of our the stuff that we put on our website we make sure it's friendly for mobile phones because you know something like 60 percent of our audience even now will look at stuff on their mobile phones yeah. rather than on their pc and, and you you have to design the the web pages to make sure those messages yeah. fit on that mobile phone rather than on a full screen size yeah. Uh, yeah. The only reason I mention this, and, and gentlemen, we're all of a similar age here. Yeah. So I, I find it quite alien. I, I look a lot younger, obviously, than Mike, but yeah. Well, yeah, you do, Julian. And unfortunately, you've got a voice for radio, haven't you, rather than a face <laughs> for TV. But um, that aside, <laughs> I, w- I wanted to ask you, I'm rambling on again. It's interesting. We've got four old blokes talking together tonight. <laughs> We're all rambling off, and, and, and Bill's going to And another thing. And another thing. And another thing. And another thing. So, so which was the first dog breed? Well, that's, uh, that's a very good question. Um, I can tell you which was either the second or the third, and that's the Dandy-Dimont Terrier. Um, I think the one... <laughs> Terrier claim to hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on, Bill. Bill, Bill, stop a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Say that again. The, the dand- I have a dandy Dimont Terrier cross. So, uh, do you buy, George? I, I do indeed. Okay. Yeah. Um, dandy Dimont Terriers um, originally came from the border country uh, between Scot- well, Scottish border country. Right. Um, they are a unique breed. Um, they have their own tartan. Would you believe um, that um, uh, they were awarded by the Duke of Buccleuch, no less, and uh, they got their name from um, Sir Walter Scott, who identified a, a farmer, James Davidson, um, uh, who'd got dogs. They dandies only come in two colours: pepper and mustard, and um, he had these pepper and mustard terriers. And so his friends nicknamed him Dandy Dinmont, and uh, that's in Guy Mannering. They Guy are Mannering, yeah. a bit of information for you. Absolutely. Um, but to go back a little bit further, <laughs> a little bit further than the Dandy Dinmont. <laughs> no, are, are, we, are we Bill on this? 
I mean, <laughs> Jake, Jake, my little Jake is, is a dandy in one cross. It's a really long body. They look a bit like someone's uh, stuck bits of fur randomly on a, on a dash hood. <laughs> Come uh, on, Bill. Yeah. Let's go back a bit further. <laughs> a bit further. Well, the first the first dogs or one of the first breeds of dog that I recorded actually were on the on the in the um pyramids. There are pictures of dogs that look something like greyhounds or that type oh, of yeah. dogs. Mm. They are I'd say just a few years before the Daily Dimont Bill. But uh, well, yes, just a few. But I'm talking about the relevance today. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are there are reports of um, of pictures of dogs looking very much like the Senges mm. on uh, uh, Mesopotamian walls, aren't there? Uh, around nine and a half thousand years old, and I think any. Every continent has tried to say that the dogs on their continent were the first dogs. I know uh, the Greenland sled dogs. Well, uh, the, the the Inuit spoken history has said that Inuit uh, Greenland sled dogs have been around uh, since uh, since the dawning of man, uh, r- roughly seven thirty uh, last Tuesday evening, in in, in more up to date times, but certainly a long time. When, when were there breeds, though? Because we, we know that wolves were sort of coaxed I, into, uh, into the uh, hearts. Uh, while, while Bill is thinking the answer for that, I, I, I yesterday seems to be a common theme in our uh, chats. It's yesterday a- I saw a cartoon, would you believe, um, of um, the servants of a pharaoh who'd announced the pharaoh was dead and the dog was to be put in the pyramid with the pharaoh. And the little dog was lying on his cushion, and he went meow. <laughs> Brilliant. In, in terms of formation of breeds, you, you've got a you know a lot of these early dogs. They they weren't breeds. They were breeds because they were they were a type of dog that had been reproduced to do certain certain roles. Mm-hmm. I think when breeds as we understand them today. And I would claim responsibility for them as the kennel club because it was when people started to compare their dogs. And some of the earliest dogs that went to dog shows were point the pointers and setters. So these had been working dogs that, that people effectively you know, would work on a on a Sunday, but perhaps take down to the pub and compare with each other, you know, on another day of the week, you know, when there mm. weren't events. And and that's actually, and it's the same with actually some of the the, the old fighting dogs, my breed, the bull terriers, which were you know the forerunners of my dogs were were dogs that were bred for some of the horrible blood sports that are around London. And those those dogs were you know when they weren't doing their work of, of doing the uh, participating in blood sports they would be taken down the pub and compared with others and, and prizes would be given and that's where the dog shows started and in terms of breed so that's when and you really what how do you define a breed you start recording it start recording its parentage and a breed forms out of that so i would claim we can claim responsibility for that and that's why if you think about it the word pedigree is really associated with dogs. You don't often talk about pedigree horses. You do talk about pedigree cats. Um, and you, But it's really a word that we've adopted and has been assigned to us, to the world of dogs. So it's um, the dog, and, and actually most of the, the breeds, or a lot of the breeds that, that are traditional in the UK, 
we recognise 222 in the UK currently, um, but most of them, or a lot of them, were formed in the early uh, the uh, the early part of the previous century. So, so sort of 19, you know, the 1900s. Mm. That's when dog shows really started to get going, and, and breed more and more breeds started to appear. Interesting, right? Okay, so so and obviously, as time has gone on, and and crufts has evolved, hasn't it? Okay, so so you have categories for these different particular breeds. Can can I touch ask you a quick question on this one because it touches back on what we started with when we we're talking about brachycephalics, and that's the the breed standards. Can you talk to us a little bit about breed standards? I mean, th- this is like the the recipe book for a breed. Mm. Tell, tell us a bit more about so, that. So it's not a Cornish pasty unless it's made in Cornwall and it hasn't got potatoes and it has got carrots and that sort of thing. Yeah, but you so, so I'll start, Bill, and you can, and, and if you no, want to add, add something. So, so I think first of all, you want to say what what is a breed standard? And I think to a certain extent, we 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 made the mistake in the early days of referring to these as a blueprint, a blueprint of what the breed should look like. But that was probably the the wrong thing because it's not a blueprint; it's a, it's a description. It's a description of the characteristics that make up that breed, and it's really. Um, it's it's all those you it's it's a list of those characteristics what that breed should look like the ideal of that breed now there is this perception that we're always seeking perfection and and that unless a dog is perfect it, it's not going to win a, dog, a show at crafts or a, mm. a prize at crafts and that's nothing could be further from the truth because there's we obviously breeders are always trying to improve and they're trying to improve on the on the previous generation but actually it, it's all about comparing the dogs of if di- different dogs of a different breed against each other but you have to have a starting point that you're comparing it to and that starting point is the breed description this this description of what a dog should look like and I, the analogy I often use is that if I was if you were to write down a description of a car and compare perhaps a mini with a jaguar you'd have to start you're explaining to the man from mars what one should look like you would have to have a form of words that actually hmm. said what what made up that car, and that's really what a breed standard is. But what we do do, we we, we and these days we're very very conscious about the health and welfare of dogs. So every single breed standard is underpinned by a phrase which actually says that the health and welfare of the dog has got to be paramount to anything else that actually is contained within that breed standard. But it's but breed standards. Um, even I am an expert in, in dogs. I could probably only look at 100 of our breed standards and immediately know what dog they fit because mm-hmm. they are very subjective right. and they're very open to interpretation. Right. Sounds like a great public quiz, doesn't it? You read the breed standard and you have to then guess the breed from that. Can I, can I just build on, uh, on that? Um, uh, just read you a couple of uh, short sentences. Uh, Kennel Club. A breed standard is the guideline which describes the ideal characteristics, temperament and appearance, including the correct colour of a breed and ensures that the breed is fit for function. Absolute soundness is essential. Breeders and judges should at all times be careful to avoid obvious conditions or exaggerations which may be detrimental to health. So um, you've got your artist's palette, if you like, that you can play with, 
but that dog's still got to move right. Um, it's got to perform. If it's if it's a, a shepherding dog, it's got to be able to do that um, function, which means it's got to hang together in a particular way. Um, and uh, that is the, I would say, the overriding um, um, uh, thing uh, with Bill. Um, a dog has got to be fit for function, fit for life. That's that's the essence of it. So your Rottweiler, who couldn't yep. take weight on his elbows but had got first-rate um, uh, hips, um, that's a no-no, a big no-no. It is a huge no-no, and, and uh, it's a shame yeah. that the, the breeder couldn't see that. But not not a good breeder, and wanting to yes. take advantage, I think, of the of the kennel club's good name, as you said. Yeah. It's a gold yeah. standard. Yeah. Uh, so Now, I know the answer to this, and I think we all do here, uh, but, but something that's often levered at me, what? Why do we have breeds of dog anyway? I've got a, I've got a monk, we're perfectly happy with that. Why do we need breeds of dog? And the answer I give, obviously, is, well, if you don't have the breeds, you can't have a mongrel that shows the characteristics you want. But uh, I'm throwing the question out to you. Why, why do we have so no, many? I mean, they, they've often started because they had a purpose. They, they were, the dog breeds were often formed, particularly the working breeds, the, the gun dogs, etc. They they were bred for a purpose to do a certain type of job. It just so happened that those characteristics of that breed developed around its working purpose. So, if it was a, a gun dog that was working, um, or a cocker spaniel, for example, which work in in a certain type of type of terrain, then those breed it would be developed in that way. And you got even got regional variations. We have the Airedale Terrier that, that worked in that part of the country, the Norwich and Norfolk Terriers, which worked in another part of the country. So you had those the Pembrokeshire Corgis, exactly, and the Cardigan Corgi. <laughs> so you you had you had different breeds of that developed. But in today, the, the reason we have so many is simply we all want different things. You know, we have the and the thing I always say to people is that that you know the, the mistake that they often make is they will go and buy a dog because they like the look of it and they don't understand the characteristics and mm. so it's it's always there are breeds out there that are so different they they have there's dogs that are suitable for living in towns dogs that could only live in the countryside you mentioned the border collier earlier only a very small percentage of the population have got the time and effort to put into giving the border collie the exercise the entertainment and the uh the, the, it's to fulfill its needs you mentioned French Bulldogs, and one of the reasons they have become so pep popular, whilst there are some that do have health issues, actually they fit into urban lifestyles very, very well indeed. They're actually not a troublesome dog. Um, so mm-hmm. if you get a healthy one, they fit into a, a town environment very well. They live in fairly small dwellings. They don't demand lots of exercise. They're not a very demanding dog. They actually are a, a very good um you know, fireside dog a dog for sitting on your lap so and, and a low maintenance dog absolutely yeah. so when you look at the 222 breeds you know my breeds bull terriers there's when i see there's a there's around about uh, a market if you like for around about between i would say between 1500 and 2000 bull terriers a year and i say that from experience because i know that when there's that many dogs bull terriers being registered being born each year I know that there's, there's sufficient homes out there for them. There's good people who are suitable for a bull terrier. 
when their registrations reach sort of three and four thousand a year, which they have done, then the, the, the mark, I find that the type of people that, that um, are coming to get them are people who perhaps don't understand the breed so much. So it, the, these things are rather cyclical, as and we see popularities of breeds wax and wane. Mm. There's a whole other topic for the reasons why they do. Um, but in actual fact, it's all about, and that's, you come back to your question, why do we need breeds? We need breeds, different breeds, because there are a whole host of different reasons people want to go different lifestyles that they're going to lead and and there's those dogs there's a different dog for each of those lifestyles you're absolutely right you're absolutely right and uh, you mentioned reasons that people become uh afflicted no 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 um besotted by by a breed and, and why people go off them and i was going to bring up actually the old little sheep dog the dulux dog mm of the of the 70s and 80s which is now on the endangered list i believe is that am i right in saying yeah that? yes so, the, I mean, the endangered list is 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 the, the the real risk that the breed may die out because of lack of popularity it comes under the heading if we were looking in the farming community it's the um, the rare breeds as it were mm-hmm. um and it's a spectacular change but so has um, uh, what? What else has changed spectacularly? Space, as in the amount of space people have got to live in nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, an oldish English sheepdog just is not the right dog for an urban co- or, or city community. Um, no. You will get the exception to the rule, but um, it's it's just not the right dog. Can't we um, have miniature? Can't we have miniature old English sheepdogs? We have Bichon Frises, they're the same. All right, okay. I'm a very lucky boy. Many years ago, I I was nearly beheaded by a breeder of Shetland sheepdogs when I said to her, you know, um, the rough colliers reduce nicely to a Shetland sheepdog, and she just about ran me out of town on a rail. This is not a a, a shrunken rough collie. This is a different breed, as it were. Uh, and, of course, she was right. It, it, a different environment, a particular kind of, um, uh, of, of, of dog. Um, yeah, the other thing, um, Old English and dogs of that ilk require a lot of grooming, too. Yes, yes. A lot of grooming. And um, we're also... Um, gosh, it, it doesn't sound a very exciting. It's a very exciting time to live, but it's also very challenging. We're time challenged. We're space challenged. Um, uh, you know, some of the dogs, some of the breeds, fall by the wayside as a result of that. Yeah, and fashion. And so, as of what breeds have we actually seen go extinct? Have we seen these since eighteen seventy three? Interesting. From the, I, I, I came into starting owning dogs in um, in 1978. I had my own dogs. I had them as a child, but I, I, 1978 was when I had my first. You were still dog. a child in 78. Well, yes, yeah, so I just got mad, just got married. Had my first dog, but it's one of those things I remember. At that time, the kennel club registered 147 different breeds. Mm-hmm. So we've grown to the 222 that we are today over that time, and new breeds have been developed. Worldwide, there's around about 400 different breeds, so we only we don't recognise all of them. Mm. Um, and there are breeds, even in this country, that we currently don't recognise. Um, in fact, an odd one is the Jack Russell Terrier. 
that was a very popular dog and, and has always been a popular dog in the in England, but we didn't recognise them. There wasn't a uniform type that we recognised until a few years ago when actually people were importing them from overseas. And actually they were largely developed in Australia and America. So it's the breed that we invented got exported was developed over there we brought them back and recognized them but there, there have been um there, been there haven't been many that we've lost over the years there have been some there is one i would say it's at great risk at the moment um which is like the, the otter hound um the the otter oh, hound large yeah. dog with a heavy coat uh, we're registering very small numbers now and it is a dog that doesn't seem to have wide appeal um, in the in the open market, as it were. So we, we you mentioned these um, mm. what we call our native vulnerable breeds. Um, we do try and promote these breeds. A lot of them are actually the terriers. They're they're they've got fairly stable numbers, but and it, it and that's really comes down to the fact that the purpose of dogs has changed. So if you go back to um, the, the last century, a lot of people in London, for example, would have a little terrier in the house because. There was lots of vermin. There were rats and mice mm. around, and they needed a dog to keep the rats and mice down. We don't have that problem now. And so well, that will just be one reason why you've seen a decline in some of our terriers. The, the fox terriers are quite rare now as dogs. Um, and we, so, but we still try and we do promote these breeds because there is a place for them. We'd hate to see them disappear. Just yes, through they're part of a cultural heritage, aren't they? Uh, absolutely. We have a lovely breeder of. Um, Irish Terriers in the village. And, you know, I'd not seen an Irish Terrier before I moved to uh, to West Sussex. And and they're lovely. They they really are great. Um, But I've only ever seen one Otterhound. And that was when I was in Kent 20-odd years ago. I I even recognised one if I saw one. There probably was the only Otterhound living in Kent. (laughs) (laughs) Probably was. Probably was. Um, we've, We've... uh, rambled as we always do, as indeed is the name. Um, and I know that um, at the back of your mind, uh, Bill L and Bill K, there's the thought: when can we get this blessed CPD over and done with, and, and end our misery? And I wonder whether now perhaps is is the time to segue into that. Well, well I, I'm more than happy to start, but and I want to make it absolutely clear that, and, and you'll know this. Because the, my my sixty second CPD is very relevant to the conversations we've been having. It, it's almost yeah. like I sat here and wrote it as a result of it. Um, but it's actually I've entitled it "How Dog Breeders Will Help Sell More Goldfish Than Puppies." Oh wow! Well, oh my word! Okay, okay. I'm very well, I'm, I'm very right, let's let's get into this then. <laughs> so, so Bill Lambert from the Kennel Club. Um, you're up for the 60-second CPD challenge? I am indeed. Okay, so wh- what was the title? How Dog Breeders Will Help Sell More Goldfish Than Puppies. Right, okay. So Bill Lambert of the Kennel Club on how dog breeders will help sell more goldfish than puppies, starting now. Good dog breeders know all about their breed and breeding lines and breed with the intention of reproducing the merits of that breed carefully selecting animals that retain the desirable points and we will reproduce them in their puppies whilst eliminating any unwanted or undesirable defects. These merits go far beyond the appearance of the dog and will extend to temperament and health too. 
The last thing that any dog breeder, good or bad, wants to do is to produce puppies that the purchaser does not want or is not happy with. Good breeders gain an understanding of the screening test they can do before breeding, which can ultimately result in eliminating specific genetic diseases. Coupled with other specific knowledge of tools, such as coefficients of inbreeding, estimating breeding values, breeders gain an insight which is far beyond that which can be taught at veterinary school. This enormous quality, quantity of knowledge is key when selling puppies. Expertise in the breed is used to screen the select buyers and help them understand about that breed and about the puppy they want to take home. Indeed, most of a good breeder's time is explained to a disappointed potential puppy buyer that the Hungarian truffle hound that they set their heart on is not actually the right breed for them, persuading them in instead to consider a different breed or perhaps a cat or maybe even a goldfish. Yay! Very good. <laughs> Very wow. There's a hell of a lot of stuff in there, Bill. It was. Uh, did I go over? Only uh, a bit. A couple of seconds, a couple of seconds, oh. no more than that. But that was that was absolutely amazing. And and it brought up a few really interesting points that, that we could spend a whole day chatting about. But the yeah. most important take-home from that is where you said that the, uh, the, the the knowledge that a good breeder will have in knowing about tests that will benefit the breed is far in advance of what the most vets will pick up a vet school. Absolutely true. And that really undermines what you've been saying all along, that actually vets and breeders, the British Kennel Club, the British Veterinary Association, should all work together mm. because we all have things to add, take to the party to, to try and improve the lot of breeds. Absolutely. The most yeah. important part of all that, though, is educating the clients mm. and getting them pinpointing them to get their advice from the British Kennel Club, from the British Veterinary Association, from the RSPCA, from the Dogs Trust, from reliable sources that are evidence-based. Absolutely. Uh, it is true that the that dog breeders do spend, and the good dog breeders spend most, spend most of their time actually telling the pe breed, people all about the bad points in their breed. We run an event called Discover Dogs each year in London. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's all about educating people about the different breeds. And I go around those stands and I hear that the, 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 the breeders and they're saying, you know, you really don't want one of these because it will, it will tear your furniture up. They're very disobedient. They won't come back, you know, and they really, and it's only if you can get past that and people un totally understand the breed and still want one, then they probably are the right person for the breed. But often the, the good breeds, the ones who are really trying, almost pushing people away and saying, this isn't the breed for you. I, I want to know if the Hungarian truffle hand would be suitable for me. Do you like um, truffles? No. Do you have truffles no. in your garden? No. <laughs> I no. live in Hungary. Sorry, sorry, uh, Bill? Do you live in Hungary? No. Well, there we are. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to ask Facebook. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so Bill, 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 Bill L there set the bar very high. Are you up for this, Bill? Uh, I'm up for it. Um, uh, yeah, mine. Uh, I'm passionate about uh, canine genetics. Canine mm -hmm. genetics, right? Okay. Well, we've yeah. spoken quite a bit about that tonight. I think it fits yeah. very nicely because we've been talking a lot about education, yeah, and and getting a message out there, and that's that's partly what veterinary ramblings is all about is is getting that message out there. So, um, okay, so genetics, Bill, is that that's that's what you want to talk about? Well, a little story, yes. A, a little okay. story, a little story about genetics, yes. Okay, so Bill King from the uh, from the Kennel Club. Charitable Trust. 
Charitable Trust, a little story about genetics. Your time starts now. I'm passionate about developing the science of canine genetics because it offers us great opportunities to improve genetic health and well-being of our companions. Some of the most distressing and painful conditions are inherited, and anything we can do to alleviate this situation gets my vote. So for many years, the Kennel Club Genetics Centre um, was based at the Animal Health Trust. And in March 2020, we got a telephone call. The Animal Health Trust was in trouble. July 2020, it had closed. Help, 40,000 bio samples, data and a team. Where do we take them? Answer, Cambridge. One year and three months later, we are open again to study canine genetics for the benefit of dogs. Fantastic. Well, there we go. Well, that is fantastic because that, that was one of the one of the huge calamities of, of, uh, of the pandemic. Um, the Animal Health Trust, uh, a centre of excellence for yeah. pretty much all breeds and species, yeah. uh, sadly closed. And it wasn't just the the immediate presence or, or, or lack of presence of, of the people of the Animal Health Trust, but it was the repositories of information and the databases they had there. Um, and I, I didn't know, actually, until you said that, that the, um, the, the canine genetic database had moved. But I'm so pleased this has found me hope. That's fantastic because that, that's a huge, absolutely huge resource. Yeah, the, well, in, in actual fact, we, we uh, had the proverbial phone calls with the administrator. Um, and would you believe that the freezers had a bigger monetary value than the um, biological samples? But to us, the bio samples were absolutely priceless. And so picture the scene. We arrived with two white vans and hoik out um, freezers and old PCs, which we've paid cash money for, and whip them across to Cambridge mm -hmm. um, and connect them into a lab there. And after a lot of toing and froing, we're operational again. Oh. And we're now going to look at polygenic, for want of a better description, polygenic um, um, uh, conditions um, and conditions that may involve environment as well. Um, so it's really exciting times. Good. Very exciting. And we, we haven't really got time to go into the polygenic conditions with environmental considerations uh, and nutritional considerations and those, uh, the, the, those, those amazing hip dysplasia, yeah. uh, elbow dysplasia, so-called. All those things are not just genetic. They have nutritional, environmental, behavioural aspects. So we need to have you back, I think, some other time to discuss those. But what a what an amazing start to to the road to animal health we, we, we made tonight. Mm. Um, thank you so much. It's been mm. absolutely fantastic. Oh, and we've oh, learned a lot. Yeah, we've learned a hell of a lot, Julian, and we've had a couple of cracking 60-second mm. CPDs there. Have you got a certificate for us? Do I have? I have. I took Excellent. the opportunity that it wouldn't be rubbish. Uh, and and uh, I made a certificate. So here we go. This is... A certificate of non-conformity. And this certifies that Mike and Julian accurately reflect the characteristics of the bozos that represent veterinary ramblings. It says, and we all learned some stuff too. And so just, just to go through the pictures, 
Uh, here we have uh, a brachycephalic dog with uh, really quite micro nares and a huge nasal fold. This was pre-surgery. Uh, I haven't got a picture post-surgery because it's not worth it. It was better surgery than like a Labrador. It was fine. Probably um, ran away because it could. Absolutely. This is this is my little dog who, who was, a, was a dandy in Monchitsu. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's a wolf that obviously he came from many years ago. And there, there's an elbow that uh, we probably like the Rottweiler elbows I saw yesterday. There's an elbow that really wouldn't have scored very low on the uh, on the BVA uh, Kennel Club uh, elbow scheme. And this is what we're trying to avoid. Elbows that look like this because there was a huge genetic or hereditary component to it. And if we can keep the, the elbow scheme going and really, really push people to have it done, then I think we won't be seeing many of these really awful elbows in the future. And here's a picture of, of a type of sheep. Can you tell what type of sheep that is? Is it a blackface sheep? It's not black head and neck sheep, but uh, well, that's, yeah, that's not a blackface. I've, I've got, in my family, I have blackface farmers, so I know it's not a blackface. It's not a blackface. It's a Somali sheep. Sorry. Ah. And, and uh, I saw it at Long League last weekend, to be for a bit. But it just goes to show that actually we have breeds of most of our domestic species, if not all of our domestic species, for reasons. And we have them because they this Somali sheep is able to store water and fat pads by its tail. And it uh -huh. produces good meat. It has a, a high enough manageable lambing uh, percentage uh, and is suited to the environment. And, and this is a sheep that is perfectly suited to its environment. And this is why originally we had dog breeds. Mm. And this is why we do need to keep dog breeds going. Not, mm. not just because they can live in your backyard better, although that's a big part of it, but because actually there are many factors that mean that, that we, as a human population, will like this sheep and not a Jacobs, or will want a Dalmatian and not a Dandy Dimbon. Uh, and the top uh, photo is, uh, is, uh, is a duck, and of course it's just to remind us that we've had uh, a bill or two on the, uh, on the show. So my, my vote is we call this the Veterinary Ramblings double bill, single bill. <laughs> I th I think Thank you very it. much. It has been a great yeah. pleasure. Been lovely. Yeah, uh, it really has. Thank you. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Guys. Well, we, we could go on and on. And we usually do. We, we normally do, don't we? But uh, <laughs> on that note, if you've enjoyed what the two bills from the Kennel Club have had to share and you've enjoyed this episode of Veterinary Ramblings, don't forget to subscribe, click like, share and uh, get, get your friends involved. I mean, that's what we're here for, spread the news and get in touch with us. If there's any questions or any people that you want us to interview and uh, cover topics with, tell us and we'll do our best to do that. So all it leaves for us to do now is to raise a glass and uh, Bill Lambert and Bill King from the Kennel Club of Great Britain. May your dog go with you. May your dog go with you. Cheers, Thank gentlemen. You. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers.